Good evening, everyone. You're all very welcome to tonight's event at the Forum. Uh, if you don't know us, the Forum's a non-profit organisation. What we do is we bring philosophers and all sorts of other interesting people together and get them to talk about all sorts of interesting things um, uh, in science, culture, politics, anything you can think of. Um, the way, reason we're able to do this is because we get support from people like yourselves. Uh, as I say, we're entirely non-profit and uh, your donations mean that we can keep going. You can find out how to donate to us via our webpage or our Facebook page if you're so inclined. And tonight we have to also acknowledge the support we got from the Royal Institute of Philosophy for this event so we're very grateful for that and of course to the LSE and the LSE stewards for their brilliant work that they've done all term for us as well so thank you guys um, uh, just a couple of housekeeping issues uh, please turn off the volume on your phone uh, so as not to disturb everyone but uh, you don't have to turn off your phone indeed we encourage you to tweet along if that's your thing and we have our own hashtag LSE form uh, if you want to join the conversation there um, this has been recorded for a podcast so if you do ask a question just be aware that your voice will be recorded and our stewards have microphones so if you could wait for that to find you before you ask your question that would be really helpful anyway that's more than enough for me let me hand you over to our fantastic panel so they can get sweary. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so a huge thanks to one and all for braving the cold and the constant promise of rain that is the hallmark of December in London. Uh, we're here tonight to talk about bad language, swearing, blue talk, profanity, etc. Uh, we were, most of us at least, encouraged against the use of bad language as children. But what is it that's so bad about it? The badness of swearing seems to change in different kinds of company and in different kinds of venue. What, what was it about being near one's grandparents or a crash or a place of worship that made such a difference? And when did we develop these morals around language? The fact that our young speech is policed by our elders might lead to the mistaken view that the further back in history we go, the more bad language averse the people we will find. Yet, the content of ancient Roman graffiti suggests that the good people of Pompeii had many of the same expressive instincts as those writing on the back of secondary school toilet doors. And, as we'll see tonight, the early modern period was something of a high point for creative potty talk. Swearing is also socially and developmentally significant. It can be profoundly cathartic and might help us avoid worse ways of acting out when under pressure. So what is it that makes swearing so emotionally satisfying and socially tempting? To help with answers to these questions, we've invited three experts, a philosopher, a historian, and a scientist, to help us get to grips with the ethical, historical, and neurological issues that surround bad language. So let me introduce them. Uh, Emma Byrne is an AI researcher and author of the book, Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language. Rebecca Roach is a senior lecturer in philosophy at Royal Holloway and is working on a book about swearing, which is forthcoming with OUP. And John Galler is a lecturer in early modern history at the University of Leeds and the author of Learning Languages in Early Modern England. Okay, so let's get started with our philosopher. Uh, Rebecca, why should philosophers be interested in swearing? Uh, what is it about this behaviour that raises interesting questions? Um, so there's, there's all sorts of things. There's, um, there's a sort of ethical normative question, which is... Uh, what sort of should we're talking about when we say that we shouldn't swear? So you know, most of us think that there's a certain context anyway where we shouldn't swear. Um, but it doesn't seem, it doesn't, it's not something that harms anyone. So then there's a question there about what sort of, what sort of norms are relevant. Um, there's also questions about um, what happens when we censor swear words. So if you think, actually this was the issue that got me first interested in this topic. Um, when you see a swear word written down and you see something like F and then three asterisks. And we all know exactly what it is, and whoever wrote that down 
intended us to know what it was. But somehow that sort of omission of three letters which aren't in themselves offensive um, mitigates the offensiveness of, of, of the word as a whole. And then there's sort of issues about sort of where swear words get their power from. So this is, this is a question that comes up again and again when I've done interviews about this. Sort of what is it about um, four words in a particular order that have the power to sort of make us sit up and take notice? and other interesting topics. Okay, so we sort of said that maybe it's not possible to think of swearing as harmful, yet I'm sure I've watched old films where you see, you know, the, the older lady in the scene who seems to be generally shook or rattled by the presence of profane language. Do you think it's possible to think of, of swearing as causing kinds of harm, or do you think in general it would never reach that? Um, so so there's, there's, we can all think of contexts where you can use swearing to intimidate somebody or to harass somebody. Um, for example, even those of us who are quite liberal about swearing are kind of not that happy with the idea of swearing at a child, for example, or um, uh, an employer swearing at their employee. So there's certain sort of relationships and certain contexts where it, it would be harmful. But just sort of, you know, swearing in the pub or um, sort of, even accidentally in polite company isn't sort of often isn't harmful even if it shocks people so do you think it's right i mean should we swear around children should it be something we feel uh, it's something i feel you know when i do it i sort of i check myself initially then maybe if the mother follows up my swearing with some swearing i feel an invitation has almost been issued yeah. and is there something social going on there <laughs> i think that's i think that's part of it so so i think part of the issue here is um, we defer to parents in, you know, that people can bring up their children how they like within reason. So it would be a bit like, you know, you, you maybe wouldn't offer sweets to a friend's child, but, you know, if, their parent, if you know their parents are happy with them having sweets, then you can sort of knock yourself out. Um, so that's part of it, just sort of respect for other people's standards. And also I think part of it is this sort of idea of, you know, it takes a village, it takes a whole community to bring up children as sort of um, socialised, civilised members of society. And if we're sort of raising them to follow the sort of norms that they have to follow in order to be civilised people, then part of that is kind of knowing, um, well, knowing etiquette, so knowing not to swear in certain contexts and so on. So um, I think we kind of frown on people who sort of undo all the good work that we think of the rest of us as doing by sort of swearing at a child. Yeah, well, I hope it's not, you know, there's no one in the audience who this is going to ruin anything for her, but I feel it's, there's something like the Santa myth going on as well. You know, it only takes one person in the class to, to blow that out of the water and maybe with swearing as soon as one person's, you know, parents filter, drop the ball, then suddenly the vernacular in the community has changed. I'm wondering about, so the, the point you mentioned of asterisks and the sort of replacement of, you know, what are in themselves inoffensive simple symbols with other inoffensive symbols. Is there anything that sort of philosophy of language or that kind of thing can tell us about what people are doing when they do that? Um, so so nobody's, nobody's written about this, as far as I know, so I'm in the process of doing that. Um, you can get my forthcoming book. Um, <laughs> but um, I think what, what this shows is it's not really, the offence is not actually about the word itself, like that particular arrangement of letters. It's about what we signal. So in omitting certain letters from a swear word, you're sort of signaling to your audience that you care about their feelings. Um, if you swear in company where you know that it's not 
expected and, and people aren't going to like it, then as well as part of the reason that shocks people, I think, is that you're sort of sending a message that I don't, I don't care about your feelings. It's sort of almost a sort of, it can be a signal of contempt. So I think what we do when we sense a swearing is we just sort of signal to our audience, I'm, I'm doing this because I don't want to offend you. And then that's the sort of gesture of consideration. <laughs> okay, so sort of mannerly swearing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so Emma, is this, I mean, the sort of morals and norms around swearing, is this something you encounter at the scientific end of things? or It's certainly something that's massively backed up by the neuroscience. So, for example, one of the most famous experiments on swearing that's been done recently is the one where you stick your hand in a bucket of ice-cold water and people can, in general, keep their hand in there about half as long again if they're swearing than if they're not. Half um, as long as Half the... as long again. Um, and the thing is, it has to be a swear word that's chosen by that person. So the guy who devised this experiment, Rich Stevens up at Keele, came up with this fantastic uh, way of filtering out whether or not it was a cognitive effect the availability of a swear word versus a neutral word. So what he'd do is he'd say to people, um, give me five words that would describe this table. And people would go, oh, duh, white, round, short, four legs. I mean, I don't have to go all the way to five, because then he'd say, um, give me five things you'd say if you hurt yourself. And if someone got to the end of those five and didn't do a swear word, it's okay, you're not involved in the experiment. But overwhelmingly, the people that he, test, he did this experiment on, which were largely his undergraduate students, because <laughs> if you want to torture undergraduates, becoming a psychology professor seems to be the way to do it. You know, if you hate 18 to 21-year-olds, then fine. And go to Keele, because I don't know what their ethics department is like, but apparently you can freeze them, so it's fine. Um, but that he would say, you know, what, what would you say? And so people would say... Ah, and then maybe a swear word. Oh, okay, your swear word is position two. So what was position two of your words for the table? Oh, white. Okay, so white will be your neutral word, and then this swear word that was second of all will be the word that you use for your swearing trial. So he's trying to get rid of cognitive recency. In terms of experimental setup, he wants to make sure that there isn't a kind of leader-follower effect. So you flip a coin to say whether or not you're going to do the... Uh, the swearing trial first or the the um, clean word trial first and again when I do this in uh, in single talks I tend to you know sort of say flip a coin and say to the poor volunteer that I've dragged out of the audience you know, what do you think is ruder heads or tails um, and then <laughs> depending yeah see some people find at least either head or tails to be rude <laughs> others are completely oblivious but there's always someone in the audience that goes snigger which is I'm, I'm all for cheap jokes it's fine um, <laughs> whatever moves the evening along but that consistently I've only had one person in all the talks that I've ever done who'd managed to hold out longer with his neutral word than the swear word and he definitely had something that he wanted to prove here so rich stevens set up this brilliant experiment but it raised as with all of the best experiments raised more questions than it answered so what happens if it's a minced oath so a fudge or a sugar and it turns out that there isn't the same emotional impact of those words. If you say fudge or sugar, you cannot keep your hand in ice water as long as if you're saying the unminced form of the oath. We also know this, that when you hear swearing in a language that you've learned post-adolescence, no matter how fluently you learn that language, you will never see the same effect on an fMRI scan or on galvanic skin response monitors or heart rate monitors that you do in swear words of languages that you learnt before adolescence. So there's this highly distributed way that we store 
swear words, taboo words that we use to evoke and to express our emotions, and that the ability to actually wound people with those words, either intentionally, if you know that they share those taboos or they have those taboos, and you don't, um, being able to use that word painlessly for you but painfully for your hearer is one of the most aggressive things you can do with swearing. But also demonstrating the flexibility of a theory of mind and saying, I know exactly what words I can use that will almost but not quite offend you or that will signal that we have our own in-group swearing that we can use and no one else could use. Or at least if anyone else uses it, they're being dicks, frankly. Um, sorry. <laughs> the swearing um, let's get it out of the way. Um, but, but that theory of mind, that understanding of how people will receive this communicative act, you can see very clearly the way in which people tone switch, the way in which people choose to either demonstrate solidarity or offence through not just bad language but all kinds of evocative language. You, so Rebecca, do you think this can be incorporated into an account of defence of swearing that there are powers to be gained by? Yeah, so this is interesting, this is all fascinating and I think, so I see sort of breaches of um, etiquette as a category that includes inappropriate swearing. So I think sort of most of the time swearing, when we say swearing is wrong, we, we don't mean that it's immoral, we mean that it's a breach of etiquette. So it's like sort of belching at a dinner table or um, you, can, you, you can pick up your own examples. But, um, <laughs> but I think, you know, we can... Um, so obviously we can offend with swearing as we can offend with breaches of etiquette. You know, if I come round to your house for dinner and I put my feet on the table, for example, then that might offend you, assuming you're kind of relatively polite. Um, but also we can breach etiquette to bond with people. Mm. So, you know, we can sort of... A certain type of rudeness or informality between friends can sort of establish trust and, um, and even sort of we can, we can invent our own, uh, our own sort of etiquette, our own rules uh, in the way that we, we interact between friends and that somehow sort of brings us closer. And I think swearing can be part of that. So um, you can actually see this uh, quite vividly, I think, uh, in certain situations like... Um, if you, if you go for a drink in the pub with some new colleagues, say, who you've, you've only kind of met professionally and everyone's fairly polite, and you go for a drink and at some point in the evening somebody will swear, and there's a sort of, ah, and sort of we can relax, I know this person, that this is kind of one of my people, and, and that, that, can that can sometimes sort of establish trust and sort of um, intimacy. So I think that's kind of how it works. It's a sort of, sort of general etiquette thing. Okay, so you think maybe those sanitised swears just won't do that in the, in the pub context? So if somebody sort of says blast when they spill the drink, that's not going to settle people socially in the same way? I think it, it probably depends on the individual. So th there might be some people who just say that naturally, but if, when you get somebody who is, who is saying it and you, you can tell that they're sort of censoring themselves, mm -hmm. then that perhaps signals to you that maybe you, should, you shouldn't kind of just cut loose and... Um, you have to sort of keep up certain barriers with them. So, Don, does this relate to any of your sort of study of the learning of swears or in foreign languages in, in the past? Or It actually does, yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking there about my first encounter with them. There's these moments when you're working with kind of 17th and 18th century source materials, and maybe you do expect a certain restrainedness or a certain kind of decorum. And then these moments just kind of run a shiver up the spine. Um, my, first encounter, uh, my first encounter with 17th century French pornography, um, obviously French, uh, translated into 
speaking to English. Um, there's this kind of incredible moment because Peeps, Samuel Peeps, goes out not very far from here um, and buys himself a book. And I was quite interested in this. So I, I looked up his book, which is called in French, L'Ecole des Filles, The School of Girls, The Girls' School. Um, and this contains a line which says, people of all ranks and degrees participate therein. What is, what are they participating in? Uh, Even from the king to the cobbler, from the queen to the scullion wench. In short, one half of the world fucks the other. And I remember coming across that and thinking, oh, all right. Okay, that kind of broke something in me uh, and allowed me to think out of that period drama box that I placed these people in um, and to kind of see some links with the present day. But it was so interesting to me, Emma, that you mentioned this kind of foreign language side to it. Because the thing that really got me thinking about bad language in history was that I was doing what I thought was a relatively innocent project uh, on phrase books. Uh, I was looking at uh, modern language phrase books from the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, and it became increasingly clear the more I looked at these um, that many, many of them contain these incredibly detailed lists of insults um, and ways of describing people, incredibly offensive ways um, of describing people. Um, so, I, I mean, I have one or two. I don't know if, you, if, you, if you'd like them. Are people Please. all right with this? Okay. <laughs> Enrich no, yeah, <laughs> no very prudish 16th century Italians in the room? Okay, fantastic. Um, so one, so uh, in a text from 1597, um, again published uh, just down the road, um, you could have bought it in St. Paul's Churchyard, so you could have gone to a religious service, come out, uh, bought a book from a man called Claudius Holliband, taught Italian, uh, and you would have learnt in his book uh, how to say, I never thought that thou were otherwise, or any other manner of man than thou art. That is, are you ready for the list, a patch, a knave, a naughty one, a liar, a ruffian, a deceiver, a, ri- a wild one, a rope cracker, a scullion, troublesome, a little fool, wretch, wicked. Um, So it's worse in Italian, uh, but that's the list that you get from him. And then if you buy, fast forward about 70 years, there's a uh, book that I found that teaches Dutch. Uh, And as well as learning how to say, you know, can you change my currency? You know, how do I rent a horse? How do I find my way to Amsterdam? Uh, You also learn terms like rogue, traitor, thief, uh, but also buggerer, cuckold and whoremaster um, as well as kind of things that you might throw at a, a, an early modern person which would be considered very bad you might call them an atheist uh, or an unbeliever um, but I just kind of found this amazing these kind of lists of insults and phrase books and the question that got me was what are they doing there like if you build buy a Berlitz book today they're not, they're not there it tells us a lot about holiday culture in this period at least forthright British tourists yeah, yeah um, well that's quite shocking <laughs> Um, but so do you think, I mean, in, so these are just phrase books for the, the amateur learner of the language. Is the thought that the culture of language then is such that it would be an embarrassment to be on holiday and not be able to produce the right term of accusation when you've been robbed? Or like genuinely, do you think like, is there something like specific to that period that you know, we can sort of pathologize about in these, in these phrase books. I think so, and it's something we'll probably get into um, a little bit uh, in detail in a while, but it, basically it's that words really matter and words really can hurt you. Uh, in early modern culture in a way that, you know, some words can hurt us today and we can, we can suffer loss or we can suffer embarrassment from the use of particular words directed at us. Um, but it all comes back to the fact that early modern societies, 16th, 17th, 18th century societies, um, are based on reputation. 
uh, and credit. And we use credit today um, both to mean you, know, you can be a credit to someone, you can be a credit to your family, uh, and you can go and get credit. It's kind of a transaction. Those two things are intimately linked in the early modern period. If you have a bad reputation, if you allow bad words to be spoken about you, um, in a cash-poor society, that can massively harm your ability to get the credit that allows you to buy bread, uh, to pay rent, uh, to live your life. Um, so credit and reputation are not abstract things. They are things that have a genuine real-world impact on how you live. And so being able to manage insult and the insults that you throw at other people, but also to identify, parry, and deal with insult is an incredibly important social skill uh, if you want to stay alive just as much as anything else. Oh, wow. Okay, so do you think then maybe uh, now that swearing, do you think it has any less sort of political or social power now? Or we've just heard that, you know, in this period it might be the difference between you know, having certain opportunities or advantages, do you think now you can succeed with a little bit more of a sort of lackadaisical attitude towards language? Or um, I think that the, the, the most offensive words, the most harmful words um, in a society uh, will be determined by what the values are in that society. So in the sort of soci- societies that, that John was talking about, where sort of reputation was much more important than it is now, or, or maybe just more dependent on word of mouth, that sort of thing, um, than words that sort of damaged your reputation, we would expect to be sort of more offensive and harmful. Um, in the Victorian times, there was a sort of thing about sex, so we sort of had this sort of um, surge in offensiveness of terms relating to sex. I mean, they've always been around, but, um, you know, sort of, the offensive, offensiveness rises and falls. Um, and now, if you look at uh, just over the, like the past 10 or 20 years, so... Um, uh, the the BBC, I think the BBC and um, the uh, Advertising Standards Authority, every 10 years or so, will do a survey on what words people find most offensive, and then this feeds into deciding what what sort of language can be said on TV before the watershed, that sort of thing. Um, and if you look at the last few reports, there's been this sort of surge in people saying that they find um, slurs offensive, so racist words, uh, homophobic words, uh, sexist words, and so on. Um, so if you really want to offend somebody these days, you know, sort of people say, oh, it's terrible, fuck, is losing its power to offend. And I don't think it is, but, but anyway, um, if you really want to offend somebody, you can go out and be racist and homophobic and et cetera, et cetera, um, which most of us don't want to do, thankfully, at least in my little echo chamber. Um, but I think that, you know, that's because... Uh, Nowadays, we're just sort of increasingly aware of racism. We're much less tolerant of sort of, you know, casual uh, racist remarks, racist jokes, sexist jokes, and that sort of thing. And that's reflected in what sort of words we find offensive. So I think that the change in offensiveness of certain groups of words over time really tracks what we, what we care about in society. It seems like, would you, I mean, would you think it'd be right to say that's sort of a, a trend towards something a bit more reasonable? So maybe some of the words that you know, were more offensive in the past have this kind of arbitrariness where they just are a thing that certain communities have decided is a bit naughty, whereas maybe now people are more focused on words that do have that harmful component of reaching out to a kind of oppression that certain groups experience. Or Yeah, so I certainly think you know, it's easier to say swearing is not harmful in most cases than it is to say using slurs is, is not harmful. I think using slurs is harmful just because it perpetuates... Uh, attitudes that actually sort of oppress um, other people. So yeah, I think this is a kind of move in the right direction. Okay, so I was going to say, the Ofcom survey that you you mentioned, it is absolutely fascinating and you can get it 
at the British Library. I remember sitting there in the, in the Humanities One reading room and trying to work out what some of the gestures were that they were referring to. So there was something like Do this. Do gestures, like physical Yeah, so gestures there was a cilian elbow, which I figured out was this. But then they said um, they, that over the years, the offensiveness of the, um, what's it, the, the blowjob gesture, they said, which is where someone vigorously moves their hand near their cheek while po- poking their tongue into the other cheek. And I was like, how does that even... Oh, no, I'm doing this in humanity's world. But I, I realised that this, that slurs are extremely different and it's interesting John saying that in the 16th 17th century your own personal repute was something that you had to defend but it's very individualistic whereas to be able to say oh we've suddenly discovered racism is bad is it's an enormously privileged situation to be in it's it's being from a family that's not been on the receiving end of that shit um when I read the Ofcom stuff and I can see the generational switch, that the, the same arguments that I have with my inveterate Daily Mail reading mother about dehumanising language. Dehumanising language doesn't have to be the kind of thing that has an asterisk next to it in the, in the Oxford English Dictionary. I mean, all right, the word that Donald Trump, when Donald Trump talked about certain countries as being shitholes, shit was an offensive word, potentially. But it's not the word shit that's the real problem here. It's the fact that he's saying that countries with majority non-white populations have less values. And that they're all the same. And that they're all the same. And that, yeah, and that this isn't, these are people that we don't wish to have in this country. The N-word is one that I will not use and I didn't use in the book. And I went back and forth on this and say, if I'm going well, what's the point of censoring things when you know that that's what I mean when I'm referring to it? I don't have the emotional impact. One of the things I realised is that neurologically swearing has a profound impact. Words have a profound impact in general, but swearing specifically has a profound impact on different parts of the brain. You can remove the entire left hemisphere of the brain that is responsible for most of our language and still be able to produce swearing. I have never heard the N-word shouted in the street and thought, am I about to be beaten for my skin colour? Am I about to be the victim of a hate crime? I've never heard the the, the F-word that is thrown at men who sleep with other men and thought, am I about to get beaten? I can't have that same visceral emotional reaction. And to throw that around, it would be like giving my two-and-a-half-year-old a chainsaw. You know, it's got enormous power and I don't know how to use it. Whereas someone within their own in-group going, here's a word that could cause hurt, but I'm saying between us, we have chosen that we're going to use that word because we are saying something that emotionally resonates between us as sharing this common identifying thing. You have more emotional nuance to be able to determine whether or not this is harmful or helpful in the situation. Which is why, as a white person, I can't say the N-word, but Kanye West can. It's that simple. I don't know how to use it in a way that doesn't hurt because I've never had it used at me in a way that is hurtful. So that's, yeah, that's all I'd say about slurs, is they, they are powerful because they other other people. They dehumanise other people. So this connection with the real sort of form of oppression that's mm. not merely linguistic that is happening there. Yeah. Okay, so it might be a good time to take a few questions at this point. Um, stick your hand up if you want to ask one and wait for the roving mic to come to you. Okay, so there's one here in the front. Anyone else? <clears throat> 
Hi, a question for Emma. Um, I read your book. I thought it was brilliant. Um, no, I've, I've, as a female, I've had uh, lots of problems in my life uh, through swearing, which I have thought within certain contexts. I'm used to doing it and then got into trouble by being myself in the other context and getting it wrong. Um, would you like to say a little bit more about uh, you know, what your book says about women and swearing? Sure. Are we taking questions in groups of three, or do you want me to do this one now? It's fine. Go ahead. Yeah. For now, yeah. So, yeah, we have this ridiculous double standard about women and swearing, and it seems, and I'm not the historian here, I'm going to defer to John, but it seems largely to come from Richard fucking Alistry and the ladies calling, or well, certainly he codified this idea that a woman swearing, that there is no sound more... Is it more onerous to the ears of God than the sound of an oath in the mouth of a woman? And that somehow we, as you know, females, were meant to be the, the, the basically as innocent as children, which is really tricky when you're the one that's going to actually give birth and then breastfeed and wipe the arse of a baby. It's very hard to maintain this idea of non-bodily purity. Um, especially it, without swearing. Especially without swearing. <laughs> I, I found it very difficult. Um, and so this, this um, attitude becomes codified then, but it perpetuates for so long that... Even, I think it's about 10 years ago is the latest uh, research, thank you, uh, on this, that a chap in the States sent out some questionnaires saying, you know, here's some swearing, how offensive do you find these particular words and phrases? And unbeknownst to the respondents, the gender that he'd ascribed to each of these phrases was, was flipped, you know, flip of a coin. So half of you would get some saying, you know, phrase one was said by a woman, phrase two said by a man, and the other half would get the other way around. And consistently, men and women judged the swearing that came purported to come from women as more offensive, as more indicative of someone who was emotionally incontinent, as more indicative of somebody that you wouldn't want to date, more indicative of somebody that you wouldn't trust or had no control over their power. Whereas when you said that these words came from men, the only score that they dipped on was whether or not you'd want to date them. They were still seen as being you know, intelligent, emotionally literate, in control of their own power. So this idea of what it means when a woman swears, I think it's possibly an extension of what it means when a woman gets angry. When a woman gets angry, she's emotional. When a man gets angry, he's passionate. Um, when a woman gets authoritative, she's bossy. When a man does it, he's you know, just authoritative. And this kind of double standard is apparent in, and again, I'm not the linguist here, but the, the ways that there are certain adjectives that are highly gendered or racialized, that we have this belief that there are certain tones that are or are not appropriate for different people in society. And largely, it appears to me anyway, please, Rebecca, weigh in on this because you will know far more than me, but that the higher up the social pecking order you get, the more leeway you seem to have about the ways that you're allowed to express yourself. And quite often, calls for civility in political discourse are largely about saying, you people that are rightly angry about something that's going on here, could you be angry in a way that makes me feel less bad about it? And so this thing about women and swearing, partly I think it's to do with these very old-fashioned norms about the idea that women are the, I don't know, the sort of keepers of the flame of innocence for our children. (laughs) 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 Sorry. Um, Yeah, right. Um, But partly it is also a control mechanism. If you cannot express your anger, then no one has to deal with your anger. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think um, uh, when we talk about politeness and what's expected of us, um, that often applies to certain groups more than others. So uh, we see it in class as well that the, the upper classes can get away with um, more than... Uh, and the working classes... Uh, allegedly, uh, than sort of middle-class people. So we have incidents like it, it being relatively common for, um, uh, for, you know, the sort of plebs, like most of us, to get, to get arrested for swearing at the police. Like most of the time when you hear about people getting arrested for swearing at the police, it's um, a black man getting searched for drugs, uh, as was the case uh, a few years ago. Uh, Denzel Cassius Hervey got um, arrested and fined for swearing during a drug search by the police. He didn't have any drugs, and he, he got that overturned. But then at around the same time, there was the, the plebgate incident uh, where the Conservative MP, Andrew Mitchell, um, was overheard calling police officers fucking plebs, um, and you know, there were no repercussions there. Um, Boris Johnson pledged a, no pol- a, no, a zero-tolerance um, policy on swearing, and then told a taxi driver in London to go fuck off and die. Um, so it does seem, you know, sort of if, if, if one of us were to say this sort of thing, sort of especially at the police, we could expect to get arrested for swearing. But, you know, if you have a certain, if you have a certain status in society, um, that's okay. And we can, just these sort of rules, I agree, that there's uh, the, the, the rules that apply to you um, that don't apply to others can be used to sort of silence um, and restrict us. And I think, you know, you're spot on when you say as well the sort of way that people respond um, to, to women's displays of emotions. So I quite like, um, especially on Twitter, when a man is being angry at me, saying, can you not get so emotional? <laughs> as long as I can know where I live. <laughs> yeah, there is that. I mean, some are born middle class, some achieve middle class, some have middle class thrust upon them. I married a, a northern, uh, sorry, a, a Londoner from, well, his parents are from Barnet, his dad was a hospital administrator, his mum was a nurse, very, very nice middle class. And I have, it took me about 10 years to get comfortable with my now white middle class privilege and I've done things like when my daughter was first born and the GP surgery was just cancelled a health checkup and said you know oh it's all right we'll delay her sort of 12 week jabs we'll do them at 15 weeks and I just stood there you know with her on my boob and she's scoring away and I just eat I've got no I've got literally nowhere else to be you know you're going to sort this out or you'll never hear the end of this from me but thinking if I was doing that in my northern native accent (coughs) If I were non-white, if I had some form of, you know, visible disability, I can't help thinking that it would have been a lot easier for them to go, just go away. Whereas there's something about the immovable white woman. There's a brilliant Saturday Night Live sketch with, I can't remember who the two are, but it's like the, I think it's Reese Weatherspoon. And it's like, you know, learning to be patient with the woman who was in Ghostbusters, black actress, got awful shit on Twitter. I can't remember her name. Leslie Jones? Thank you, Leslie Jones. Basically going, no, you know, this is how you have to police your emotions. This is how, if you don't fit into that nice, privileged, I can get away with being angry mode, that you will be told you're being emotional, you're being irrational, and thus dismissed. And it's... Once you've noticed that, once someone points that out to you, you see it everywhere. And just turning the tables on, you know, particularly males on Twitter and saying, oh, you're being very emotional. 
Is this, is this a hormonal thing? Is there not much of a, 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 a baffled reaction that can, that can cause? Mm. I wonder, does the, the sort of gender disparity play out in the historical cases? I can think of philosophers, I can't remember who it is, um, but in the 18th century discussing how bad it was that women were heard to be talking loudly. So, like, <laughs> even less than, like, the content is not important, it's just that they are speaking at volume. Well, I think you have exactly the right idea there, and I think this is part of a more general... The issue that a lot of people historically have is less with women swearing and it's more with women speaking at all. Right? Like I came across, I'm doing a, a documentary on the history of the tongue uh, at the moment. Check it out, Radio 3, February. Uh, but <laughs> we've been ready. talking to all sorts of people about the histories of the tongue. And um, the thing that got me doing it was this description of a woman's tongue uh, in 1673. And it's from a text on how women should speak. Um, and it says, ladies... Uh, you always know something's going to be good when it begins with ladies. Uh, it says, ladies, take heed of that slippery glib member, your tongue. And there's this kind of sense of the tongue as this kind of out-of-control, almost bestial thing that unless it's very carefully guarded, and we're talking about the era in which scolds bridles do exist, like actual helmet things that are used against women who are deemed to speak in the wrong way to clamp down the tongue as a kind of public punishment. Um, there's that kind of broader war. Um, on, on women's speech. But there's a really interesting... I think we were talking about class as well. Um, and it made me think of all of these uh, guides for uh, women on how, to, uh, on how to raise a child. And in a time when it's very common for children, even of kind of middling families, um, to have encounters with servants or maybe to be put out to wet nurses. And one of the big worries that people have are the language that, that these kids are going to pick up through their contact with people who are believed to be their social inferiors. So the idea is that like, at the same moment as you're imbibing milk from a, from a wet nurse, you're imbibing maybe a local dialect or accent or maybe terms that are not considered correct um, or considered ladylike. And it's one of these kind of periods when you... I think you do see the rise of discussions of civility and manners that we're still seeing played out in debates over civility and politics and so forth today uh, and in debates at what is appropriate speech. And so many of those debates are geared towards um, women's speech and towards restricting where women's voices can be heard, what they can be allowed to say um, and who they're allowed to speak to. I suppose the, only, uh, the other side to it, which is maybe a bit more cheering, is that when you go into actual instances of women's speech in the past, um, for all that women labour under uh, patriarchal societies in this period, you do find these moments of incredible verbal uh, inventiveness or explosion which show that these might have been the rules, but they were often honoured in the breach rather than in the observance. And I think about the, the amazing work of, uh, of Laurie Gowing, um, who did all this work with the church courts of 16th and 17th century London, coming across these trials for um, speech crimes and trials for slander. Uh, and things like, so she has a great moment with um, uh, a woman called Edith Parsons uh, in 1590 in Clerkenwell, uh, leans out the window uh, and roars uh, at another woman, uh, thou art an whore, an arrant whore, a bitch, yea, worse than a bitch. Thou goest sorting up and down the town after knaves, and art such a hot-tailed whore, that neither one, nor two, nor ten, nor twenty knaves will scarce serve thee. Um, and then she went on, uh, the record says, with other words, past womanhood to name. Uh, <laughs> so the reality and the, uh, and the rules didn't always, uh, didn't always coincide. I feel if that happened now, there'd be a whole sort of merchandise industry growing up around <laughs> getting the right T-shirt to express this. I know, I think I, I, my next necklace should say hot-tailed whore. I, I quite like the idea of that. <laughs>
Um, so the early modern period for philosophers tends to be thought of this period between maybe Bacon and Descartes and Kant. Is there anything, you know, when we start to think about early modern literary culture, is there anything that kind of, we've talked a bit about reputation, but getting to grips with the kind of language use there in England, what kind of defines the period? The landmarks of swearing. <laughs> That's a really good question. I mean, you know, people often go to Shakespeare first and we get various kind of relatively lukewarm, I would say, uh, insults in that. Uh, so, you know, you have King Lear when Kent is talking to Oswald and, you know, is this a base, proud, shallow, beggarly, three-suited, hundred-pound, filthy, worsted-stocking knave. Uh, nothing but the composition of knave, beggar, coward, pander, and the son and heir of a monk bitch. But that's actually quite uh, that's fairly uh, tame I would say for the early modern period. I mean, if we were going to define the early modern period as kind of the time of swearing, it might be between um, uh, think about the Scottish poet William Dunbar um, who's uh, the author of this flighting poetry kind of like a manuscript rap battle uh, which involves some genuinely uh, I am not a man who blushes easily but there are some things that I won't say uh, given that my mother could download this podcast um, <laughs> hello Mammy Gallagher if you're listening uh, I promise I don't know any of these words I'm using uh, but William Dunbar um, in The Flighting of Dunbar and Kennedy which is an early 16th century Scots poem um, kind of needs to be translated once you know for the meanings of the words and once when you're like what does that even refer to I, I don't know does my body have that part uh, so it's absolutely <laughs> and I suggest you all look it up. Um, and then I suppose at the other end of the period, you have uh, the Earl of Rochester, you know, who's just a kind of famously crude and horny poet um, who's kind of a... has an eagle eye on the mores of the court of Charles II. He's one of the people that we owe this idea of Charles's court as a kind of freewheeling, um, sex-soaked kind of place. So Rochester says of uh, Charles II, um, his scepter and his prick are of a length, and she may sway the one who plays with the other. Um, though safety, law, religion, life lay ont, would break through all to make its way to cunt. So that's satire, restoration style, uh, from the Earl of Rochester. So Dunbar to Rochester, and that's the early modern period in swearing. Yeah, I guess what, so it's interesting in the first instance, I feel like that what was nasty about the man was just saying he came from a terrible woman, but at least in the sort of the later example, you're having a bit more of a sense of a two-way street between vulgarity. Well, that's true, but it is that issue that you have with early modern insults. There is a very clear, and it won't surprise anyone to hear this, is a massive double standard, which is that the term that appears so much in slander trials uh, in the 16th and 17th century um, is whore, or associated words. And in early modern English, there is no comparable term for a man. So you can call a man a whore master, you can call him a board, but that's a very, very different term. It's doing different things, and it's gendered in different ways. So the insults that you use can kind of target in, uh, in gendered ways and can target women specifically, and in that reputational economy can be wildly damaging. I think it's interesting, the, the, the Rochester poem about Charles II, that he is essentially calling him a fuckboy, right? Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, even though there is no word for it, basically going, hey, did any woman who is prepared to give him a little tickle is, is going to change the constitution? I, I find that, again, quite, you know, it's something that we see so rarely. And again, I'm not sure how much that is to do with the sort of power dynamics of society, but this idea that women's chastity is, is policed and prized and men's chastity is sort of weird and suspect, mm -hmm. you know. I think there is an issue of sort of who gets to make the rules here. Um, so, you know, sort of in modern times, you see this in um, 
in the fact that uh, there's certain sort of dialects and communities where swearing is used sort of inoffensively. Um, so there was a, a Ken Loach film called The Angel's Share, um, sort of in 2012, uh, made the headlines for a dispute about swearing because um, when it was being classified by the, the BBFC, the British Board of Film Classification, um, the, Ken Loach and his team were told that in order for it to receive a 15 certificate, some of the swearing had to be cut. Um, they were told they could have seven cunts, but only one of those could be an aggressive cunt. Um, and <laughs> Ken Loach's response was, well, this is a film about sort of working-class people in Glasgow, and the word cunt uh, can function very differently there. It could be a sort of a term of endearment. It, it doesn't have to be sort of insulting and offensive at all. Um, so then there was sort of the discussion about, you know, sort of there's this, uh, I think one of the, the film's teams sort of commented that there's this, there's this group of sort of middle class people in London deciding sort of what classification a film should have. And in doing that, they're sort of bringing this sort of white middle class set of values and imposing them on um, the language of another community, which is, again, sort of quite silencing. And there's other examples, you know, sort of the way that, uh, the way that swearing is used in hip-hop in sort of working-class communities. Um, when we sort of ask, well, what is it, where does our disapproval come from? It is very much a sort of set of middle-class white values, Christian values. It's a recent film, A Northern Soul, which is a documentary that follows a guy in Hull who sets up a community project. He gets a second-hand bus um, and sets it, uh, trips it out as a, um, a recording studio and takes it around various sort of schools and youth groups and has kids recording music. And that has a lot of strong language in it. And again, the British Board of Film Classification, I think, gave it a 15 certificate. But a number of uh, councils up north, including Calderdale, shout out to my home council, um, dropping that to a 12A and saying, this is important for parents to see this with their kids. Because beyond talking about the swearing, talking about you know, what does it mean to have hope for your future? What does it mean to build a community? What does it mean to know that you, know, you have the opportunity to do something in your community to better it and better yourself? These are things that we want parents and kids seeing together. And I just I thought that was staggeringly enlightened of the place where I grew up. So it seems, you know, acceptability and swearing has sort of class dimensions, geographical. I'm thinking of instances, you know, where Americans discuss English swearing as sort of sounding acceptable in a way that they don't find the sound of American swearing because to them maybe most English people sound fancy in a way that kind of validates mm. the swearing. So do you think, I mean, I wonder in the history as well, is it, I mean, if you were to buy a phrase book of, of English in the <laughs> Netherlands or Italy at that period, are they going to be encouraging you to have the sort of penis-focused vocabulary that is appropriate to attending the theatre? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, there's certainly ones that are quite, um, I guess, sexually focused uh, as well. And I think it's quite common that you need to know this, this language because the, these kind of reputational cultures aren't kind of uh, strictly just, just about England. But actually, just thinking you know, of those, those two points... It's really interesting that there's, you know, there's that element of, of, of class and race and origin and stuff like this as well because you know, I recently gave a lecture at an open day for students. So uh, bright-eyed prospective students uh, and their lovely parents came into, um, into a room and I'd been asked to give the lecture. I said, look, do you mind if I do it on insults and swearing in the early modern period? Uh, and bless them, my employers, bless them, said, yes, it's fine. Um, and I stood there saying things that had they come out on... Uh, in a song in Radio 1, 
parents would be up in arms. Had I not been wearing a tweed jacket and had a big white face on me, uh, the response of parents and their kids would be very, very different. So, you know, I benefit massively from various aspects of, you know, my position, from that academic place, from the fact of being on a stage and behind a microphone in a particular context, which I thought was really, really interesting because there was stuff there, you know, that I was able to say to kind of titters from parents and kind of nudges of their kids that would have provoked uproar had certain variables been changed. That's interesting. This is like slightly off topic, but I always feel Irish people get away with swearing maybe more than... So it's interesting to have you as an Irish person exerting that privilege of, you know, a naturally sweary man while using English insults of different classes. So it's something... Yeah, I mean, there's, there's always a two sides to that, though, isn't there, where you're kind of like, it's nice to be indulged and it's nice to allow, you know, to be allowed to kind of perform a certain aspect of your own culture, but there's also a sense in which maybe you're being asked to kind of to be the paddy in the room, to be kind of standing there with a pig under your arm kind of saying, feck, or something like that. And it's, it's an interesting one. There's, you know, people say, oh, you're Irish, you know all about swearing. You're like, oh, well, I do, but, like, I know a lot of foul-mouthed Brits, you know? <laughs> <laughs> also, where I suppose it's maybe part of the assumption is that, like, we're incapable of speaking without swearing. Exactly, we have unruly so. tongues, you know what I mean? 800 years wasn't enough like, to come back and finish the job. Uh, so this is now a discussion on Irish republicanism. Uh, <laughs> The, f- the floor is open. Any questions? <laughs> Seriously, though, if anyone has any questions at this point, please raise your hand. Okay, uh, we've got one. Any other brave people? And this woman here. So, you've, um, take three. Thanks. You've been talking about swearing, bad language, oaths, insults, and slurs from mostly an offensive point of view. It struck me, particularly this year, that. Swearing is a platform for fantastic creativity. Uh, Earlier this year during the World Cup, and most of this happens on social media, but earlier this year during the World Cup, Neymar, the Brazilian forward, was described on social media as a preening wank puffin. (laughs) Which naturally naturally brings me to a certain well-known president of the United States, who's been called an awful lot of things this year. My personal favourite is Orange Shitgibbon. <laughs> it was discussed in the, in the talk beforehand. <laughs> yeah. And I've begun to collect a lot of these words. Uh, Clack Wanker was, uh, came up last week. Uh, and and there, there are many. Do you have any observations about the non-offensive side of swearing as a platform for creativity and communication? Okay, so we'll just take two more as well and then deal with them in a batch. So this woman in the red here, please. Hi, I had a question about... um, So basically, Orwell, in I think early 30s, wrote about the word bloody and how it made its way from working-class... Londoners to the drawing room, and his prediction was that in the follow in the following twenty years or so, he said the F word, well, the adjective derivative of the F word, would probably follow the suit and make its way to the drawing room. Now, I'm not in the know of what the talk in the drawing room is at the moment, but I do hear a whole lot of people using both the bloody word and the other word, willy nilly. And I'm wondering if we have less distinctive boundaries these days between like class-specific swear words, and if that's the case, then why why is it like like it is? Thanks. Thank you very much. And then just a final one here. 
Yeah, um, I guess my question is sort of related. I just wondered, um, so you, Emma and Rebecca, were talking about sort of how culture and values tend to also like determine what words would count as offensive, right? You're talking about cunt and northerners and people in Glasgow. And I was just thinking sort of, especially there's been a lot of discussion about rap music and um, black culture with like some words that by sort of some feminists have been described as very offensive, right? So I was, and also I come from a country that's different from the UK, but we share some of the same shit swear words. However, they're deemed way less offensive in Denmark, where I'm from. I'm just wondering sort of, the sort of tension that might occur between different groups and sort of words that have different meanings or sort of position in those groups. Like how much do you censor or sort of impose the restrictions on words that are central to one culture but might be really offensive to other people and what sort of, what can one do in those sort of incidences? Okay, thanks. So I'll just for the sake of the podcast, just repeat a bit. So one question on the sort of, uh, we've talked a lot about the offensiveness of swearing. What about the sort of creative platform it provides for new means of expressing mostly negative things about people we don't like? And then a second question about Orwell and predicting sort of changing trends in offensiveness relative to the sort of power of specific words. And then a third question on culture and values and how to handle situations where maybe what's completely germane funny language use in one context becomes uh, completely different and offensive in another. Does anyone want to jump in anywhere? <laughs> I just want to say how much I love wank puffing. I, we were talking earlier about favoured swearing and I love the bathos of a swear word followed by something diminutive. Uh, one of my favourites is cockwomble. Um, I also enjoy spunk trumpet. But there's something about, particularly when used against someone who has fatigued you with their ridiculousness that if you call someone a wanker there can be a degree of vitriol if you there are much stronger words that demonstrate that you are feeling a great deal of ire whereas if you call someone a wank puffin you've moved beyond that you're at the point where you are it feels almost like you're, you're saying i'm I've no longer even got the energy to insult you properly. You just annoyed me that much. I don't know whether it's always that, but there is something about that creativity that almost undercutting the swearing and juxtaposing something, particularly when it's a cute animal, like a puffin or a gibbon. A gibbon's cute. I think gibbons are cute. Yes. Um, that, yeah, that there is that kind of almost bathosy type thing or, or almost like a sort of swearing lightotes of going, I can't even be bothered to insult you properly you've become that tedious to me right now and i think that's an enormously powerful thing when you are faced with someone like trump i can't say anything about Neymar's playing style but certainly someone like trump who deliberately foments outrage to basically go you are tedious i remember my stepdad getting run over by a taxi driver and he he pulled himself up and this taxi driver was like Oh my God, he's gonna, he's gonna give me this mouthful because this guy had run over his foot. And he went, I have never had a particularly high opinion of taxi drivers, and you served nothing to alter that. <laughs> oh God, get me an ambulance, they can broke my foot. <laughs> but the great thing about that was that 
it was almost like, I can't eat, you're just so terrible, I can't even swear at you, you're that useless. And there is something really powerful about that going beyond just the outrage swearing into, I'm just fed up of you now. And I feel like for those of us that are in a position to just be weary of Trump, calling him something like a shit gibbon. Oh, I've gone very northern now talking about my stepdad, sorry. Uh, but calling him something like a shit gibbon, it, it's almost like this sort of bathos or light OTs of going, I just can't even with you right now, which is one of my favourite phrases among young people. Salute to anyone who just came up with, I just can't even right now. Like, the lack of a verb in that is just brilliant. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I had forgotten that bloody used to be offensive. It's so normalised now, drawing room or otherwise. You get these, I mean, you know, words that have totally lost their power. So something like naughty, which you used mm. earlier on, used to be kind of a significantly more offensive word. If you call someone naughty, that's a big deal in the you know, 16th and 17th century. And then these kind of, uh, that, that kind of change over time to kind of trace particular words and their usage over time is an incredibly interesting um, uh, it allows us to kind of follow certain other kind of bigger political developments and how they then kind of uh, play into kind of everyday use of language. I always find it really interesting that, you know, England's Reformation kicks off properly in the 1530s. Um, and, you know, most English people are Protestants by the late 16th century, but Catholic swear words seem to last a lot longer than the Mass um, in England. People swearing by the Mass, by God's wounds, by God's blood, which might give us, uh, or might kind of tie into bloody as well. Um, these are kind of hangovers. And then to, to us today, we either don't say them or they're so devoid of actual offensive content um, that it doesn't matter. But I think tracing those kind of afterlives and what happens when they as they make their way to the drawing room and then what happens next. I think it's wildly interesting. I think one of the more interesting things about the evolution of language is not what's happened to the word fucking, but what's happened to the word drawing room. I mean, who knows anyone that has a drawing room these days? <laughs> and that kind of equalisation of class, that even if you had what would have been a drawing room, no one's ever going to refer to it as that. You know? So this is you know, the playroom for the kids, or the study. or the, you know, No one would ever mark... Or, no one I know, the circles in which I move, I don't know anyone that would say, please do, retire to the drawing room. Although maybe your dad, who, who likes to answer the door with a great expense, might indeed say, please do, join me in the drawing room. Shall we retire to the drawing room? 100%. It's a delightful archaicism. Yeah, well, I wonder, is meaning change playing a role as well? Because I remember reading uh, about people in 18th century or 17th century having very poor opinions of topic X and then going back to their work and seeing them call it nice all the time and thinking, well, what's the problem here? They obviously thought it was very nice, but what we mean by nice now is not at all what they meant, right? They meant sort of simple and, like, boring and maybe, like, overly tedious. I mean, are we any better in the sense, like, oh, yeah, she's very nice versus oh, she's very nice. But I mean, there's going to be kind of... Well, a nice cake is a nice cake. Oh, yeah, same, absolutely, so, yeah. I mean, find this with uh, being a speaker of Irish English because uh, a lot of times people will, knowing you're Irish, they'll tell you something is grand, not realising that in a lot of senses in Irish English, grand just kind of means fine. Uh, so how was dinner? It was grand. Like, that does not mean that was a grand dinner. No, no, no. Sorry. Yeah, no. So like a second language speaker, it sounds like a banquet. <laughs> so how was your holiday? <laughs> okay, and then maybe on the cultural point, how should we deal with situations where, I mean, we all know sort of a lot of... Uh, international gestures that don't travel well so you know touching somebody's head in in thailand for example is is very controversial whereas you know in ireland you, england maybe it's not so so difficult so how should people deal with 
Do you touch a lot of people's heads? Do you not? <laughs> I would touch somebody's kid's head without feeling oh, yeah, uncomfortable, yeah. whereas over there that would be seen as something quite just dismissive and, and negative. So, uh, really glad I had an example for that. <laughs> uh, so, what do you, how should people? How should people handle this? How should people? What should people do when they discover themselves to have, you know, inadvertently, you know, executed some sort of cross-cultural linguistic transgression? Apologise and hope. <laughs> yeah, I think that this. Uh, so sort of, it, it's interesting because on the one hand there are sort of things that are offensive um, and we should try not to do what we know is offensive in other cultures. But at the same time we are sensitive to who is doing the offensive thing. So if we are sworn at by somebody from our own, a fluent speaker of our own language, then we might be offended if it's in a certain context. But if we're sworn at by somebody who is, uh, who is learning our language, then we might sort of, we might if we're not thinking, be offended. But we might sort of think, oh, hang on, you know, they're just learning. They don't know the, they don't know the implications of what they're saying. Um, and I actually think there's certain, there's certain contexts where we just... There's certain groups of people that we, we would just find very hard to be offended by. So children <laughs> swearing at us is, is kind of, you know... We might try and teach them not to, but it's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, sort of, if uh, it, it's be a lot of a lot of what's offensive here is what's conveyed. So if you do something in a way that conveys disrespect and maybe contempt, then that's going to be offensive. So if you sort of go to a culture and you um, and you know that a certain gesture is offensive, and, it, and it's clear to the people around you that you know it's offensive, and you do it anyway, then the message you're conveying is, I don't really care about what you value, uh, which is disrespectful. Whereas if it's clear that you're sort of ignorant, you're sort of acting from ignorance and that you're well-intentioned, then that's, that's not offensive, unless you're sort of not sensitive to what's going on. So I think sort of it's not, the, it's not just the gesture or the behaviour itself, it's the sort of surrounding inferences that we make about the people we're dealing with. I guess this is the difference between ignorance and malice. You know, it's like my daughter can't, I was saying earlier, my daughter can't say C becomes T and R becomes W. So when I'm cooking, she asks if she can twat the eggs for me, which is delightful. Because <laughs> she, she thinks she's saying crack. She's also the same when she's talking about duck. She watches Sarah and Duck, and she likes saying that duck. Like, oh, he said twat, twat. It's like he, he really didn't <laughs> say that. It's charming. Um, but that's because it's not malicious. Whereas the, the idea that, you know, later on, if in her teens she turns around and calls me a twat, I'll probably feel very differently about that because I'll know that that is about her having strong feelings about my, uh, my efficacy as a parent, which she's probably going to be very entitled to do if she ever hears me dobbing her out to a room full of strangers. <laughs> I was really interested in what was said earlier as well by the lady from Denmark. Um, this idea of... Um, unhomogeneous culture and how whether or not culture is a um, a thing that is like centrally decided upon and when you have things like Ofcom deciding what you can and cannot say before the watersheds or when you have the master of the revels deciding what you can and cannot say on stage there is this idea of saying you know we have or the BBFC we have this cultural set of norms that quite often censor marginalised voices. And someone was asking me the other day on the, the radio, the local radio thing, and saying, look, why is there all this swearing in music? They didn't used to be swearing in music. And it's like, no, between the 1940s, 50s, and 
until the early 2000s. If you wanted to hear music, particularly new music, if you wanted to know what's popular, you'd listen to the charts on the radio. So there was this filter, like literally this funnel, through which you would experience popular music culture. And then there was the swapping of tapes and the you know, finding of recordings, um, and then later on, streaming. And you are able to experience a much wider variety of, of music. But we forget that radio is a relatively novel invention and that the charts before the hit parade were how popular bits of sheet music were. And one of the most popular bits of sheet music from, I think, the 1930s was a song called Squeeze My Lemon Till the Juice Runs Down My Leg. I mean, it's just that none of this is new. We just had this weird half-century interlude where someone was deciding what music we'd all listen to. I don't know what, I'm, what I mean by that. I just wanted to say squeeze my lemon till the juice runs down my legs. <laughs> I'm glad you did. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask sort of in general, you know, you've sort of written this book about the science of swearing. I mean, what are those who are interested in the science, what kind of things has science been able to tell us about swearing? It's, well, it's twofold. There's things that science can tell us about swearing, but they're far more fascinating to me are the things that swearing has told us about science. So, for example, I mentioned earlier the fact that you can lose the entire left hemisphere of your brain and still find yourself able to swear fluently, even when all other language production is gone. So a fairly standard test for this is you show people pictures of objects and ask them if they can recognize them. And there's a wonderful study that I read while I was researching for the book uh, about a fairly famous aphasic patient who'd had this left hemispherectomy. And they're showing him pictures of you know, a watch, a clock, a chair, a table. And the researchers document in exquisite detail, you know, how many seconds of pauses there are, what kinds of noises he makes, but this patient is unable to utter any of these words. And they show him pictures of various famous people, you know, Marilyn Monroe, I think Buzz Aldrin. They show him a picture of Ronald Reagan. And all they document is that this patient, who I think goes by the initial D, responds with a surprisingly fluent and well-formed stream of swearing. He's suddenly able to speak. Now, when you think of the muscle control that is required to do what I'm doing now, so you have to control diaphragm, lungs, throat, vocal cords, teeth, tongue, lips, this is the most, forget playing the piano, speech is the most intricate muscular dance that we do, and Sophie Scott is amazing on this, if you ever get a chance to see one of her talks. The ability to do that requires so much control from different parts of the brain. The fact that there is this secondary space that takes over and that can still produce this exquisite muscular you know, symphony, but only for swearing, is fascinating. It tells us so much about the way that language is distributed in the brain. The thing is, this is almost a rediscovery. We've known this since Victorian times. There's a guy called John Hewlings Jackson who used to study aphasics in asylums. And these were quite often people who'd had strokes. And he said then, they're not aphasic. They're genu generally, and quite often he went to Paris for this, they'll be saying, mon dieu, um, or ciel, various sort of religious <laughs> swears of the time. But no one was writing those words down because they didn't want to commit them to print. So there's kind of this lost evidence whenever someone doesn't write down what these swear words are and thank goodness for John Hewlings Jackson who had no such compunction. We also know lots of things about you know what age you can learn the emotional effect of language by testing second language speakers. I think the most fascinating thing that I came across was talking to a friend who was a primatologist and saying but of course chimpanzees swear. 
really, because I only knew about Project NIM, which was this sort of arch behaviorist, you know, stick a, a chimpanzee in a lab and a clipboard and a stopwatch and try to make them make signs, which is not how we learn language. Far more interesting are the studies done by uh, Roger and Deborah Foots, where they actually fostered chimpanzees into their home. And one of the things you need to do when you foster a chimpanzee in your home is potty train them, because they will use their excrement as a you know, form of disapprobation. But once you've taught them to use the potty, and they get a potty taboo, they'll lie if they have an accident or are caught short. Uh, they will blame that on someone else, so they, should, they have shame. They will insist on holding it and finding somewhere private to, to go to the bathroom rather than doing it out in the woods on a walk. So they have this taboo. But the sign that they have that goes with everything excremental, the sign dirty, they then use in exactly the same way that we use our own excremental words. So, you know, it, it, it is, the sign is dirty, but they go, dirty Roger, dirty monkey, whenever they were angry or frustrated. They had a scatological sense of humour as well. They would threaten to do poos. To, in the same way that my two-and-a-half-year-old will sit at the table and going, I'm going to fart. It's like, yeah, you're not, though, are you? You're just saying that to wind mummy up. And they had literally the sense of humour and the grasp of, of rudeness that my two-and-a-half-year-old does, which is astounding. So the things that... The, the study of taboo language used figuratively in order to either express or create emotion, which was my working definition of swearing, um, it has told us so much about our brains and the way that language and emotion and communication have all developed together in tandem. It's interesting. So there's obviously a clear distinction between something like teaching a parrot to say shit, <laughs> yeah. uh, as fun as that may be, but there's something inauthentic about the way they're, they're, they're just repeating shit, yeah. they're not saying it, whereas something's going on in the primates, like some forged association between I know you think poo is gross. Yeah. I want to tell you that I think you're gross or well, you're bad. <laughs> I personally, you know, the, the chimpanzees themselves think poo is gross. So there's also this kind of, you have to, when you use a word that is taboo, you also have to overcome a certain degree of reticence, even though it may not feel like it because there's also the wonderful release that goes with it. But we have these conflicting emotions about words that we find taboo. And we always know that there's a social risk with using them as well. And the fact that they could judge, you know, these situations. And it wasn't that a grown, a grown a, a human had taught them to use these words any more than I've taught my daughter that saying fart is hilarious. Maybe I did. Maybe that was my fault. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, that this is something that once they had a taboo and a means of expressing it, it took on this enormous power. Whereas one of the chimpanzees, the one for whom the project is named, Washo, uh, she was the earliest one to be adopted and was the one that fixated most on, on human males. And they would give her copies of Play, Playgirl and she would masturbate to the image of human males. But they never made a thing out of it. They just kind of ignored it and left her on her own. So that she has an equivalent of the word shit, the sign for dirty, but has no equivalent of the word wanker because there is no taboo for her in, in masturbation, which I... I'm fascinated. Okay, so a world without taboos is likely to be one without any meaningful. Absolutely, yeah. I think something interesting here is uh, you, you often hear a criticism of swearing that it's unnecessary. But this sort of thing, I mean, these examples sort of illustrate that it's, it's a very fundamental form of communication. Yeah. So, I, yes, it's... 
If we decided as a species tomorrow to just never swear again, possibly by locking me in a box or putting a skull's bridle on me, we, the, the next generation would invent their own yeah, swearing. Yeah. We, we can't eliminate it any more than we could eliminate, I don't know, the desire to eat foods that are high in fat and sugar at some point. You know, we, we've, we've decided this is a really useful thing mm. to do. And well, even, even though we know that sometimes it's not great, we'd still do it. So my daughter's been reading... Um, it's called The Girl Who Saved Christmas by David Williams. Um, and in that book, uh, impossible is a swear word for elves. Um, and she, so we read it together in the evenings and she reads it to me. And whenever she comes, a word, the, uh, when, whenever she comes across the word impossible, she stops and says, that's a swear word. Um, so, yeah, sort of, yeah, if we wiped out swear words, we would just find new, mm. new words to laugh at in much the same way. I and think. I worry about elf culture. This sort of sounds like working for one of these, you know, sort of a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon. You're not allowed to say that something's not possible. You know, you just have to go and yeah. do it. Oh, that's dark. <laughs> Well, it seems like maybe we are inventing new swear words where they lose their power. So maybe the ones that are more politically loaded or speak to oppression that hasn't changed enough to prevent them from being harmful anymore or something. Whereas in the case of the more arbitrary ones like, you know, bloody or fucking, uh, we're just finding new ways of combining things to, you know, try and sort of arouse some new response in people to offend. Yeah, I, I, one of the things I like about the bodily functions one is that that's so common to human experience, you know, that we all, everybody poops. Um, we are all the product of, of a fuck or at least the, you know, sort of the, the, you know, some lab version of that, you know, the meeting together of, of two gametes. So it's, it, I like those, they're universal, even if they're not actually universally swearing, at least they are universally in our experience. Whereas the ones that we're inventing at the moment, things like cuck and snowflake on one side and gammon on the other, it is definitely, I think, a much less harmful form of othering. But it is still that almost a reputational thing. I am dismissing your opinion because you are you are not capable of right think. Um, I have to jump in on cock, because cock is cuckold, which is, if you are around here in 1650 and Mm. you're screaming at your your male neighbour, that is what you're calling him. And that is one of the the weirdest things I found, is this online alt-right, online and in-person alt-right culture, one of the words that the alt-right has claimed is cuck for cuckold. This may not be a familiar term to everyone, so would you... So a cuckold is uh, a man whose uh, wife is having sex with uh, with other people. And a cuckold, you can usually tell a cuckold by the fact that he has horns. Uh, so he's indicated he's wearing, wearing little horns, or is depicted with horns. You make the sign of the horns uh, above him. Uh, now, this is a very common early modern term that you will use to, uh, to attack someone else. It's incredibly shaming. It implies that you're unable to satisfy or uh, you know to keep order in your household and all these things so it's, it's very very bad but it's found this thing with you know old right people are now attacking people they don't like uh, they don't like as cuckolds or cucks which i gather has gone hand in hand with a rise in cuckold themed pornography so there's a whole it's kind of a cuck moment happening at the moment yeah, um, an upside down bell curve yeah, from the <laughs> exactly it's now, back uh, but then you also have what the old right turns against uh, one of their own and uh, they are known as cuck servitives uh, so they are conservatives who, in fact, are wearing the horns and are no longer the right kind of conservative. So it's one of these ones I kind of remember watching it, and it was though like it was as though suddenly ruffian had returned as a kind of very <laughs> term of abuse. Scallywag, yeah, you rapscallion. Yeah, but to, so cuck has this kind of 
weird <coughs> long history, which I don't know, I certainly haven't quite come to terms with yet. So we've sort of got, yeah, some of the classic hallmarks of swearing being circulating around notions of poo and excrement, uh, sexual failures or maybe over successes. I'm trying to think of, I mean, the norms around speech acts relating to God, do you think? I mean, blasphemy obviously is something that overlaps a lot with bad language. Um, many people may know that Ireland has just voted to repeal the law against blasphemy that was in our constitution uh, until a few weeks ago. Um, but so do you think people are more tolerant of, you know, invoking the Lord's name, let's say, or, you know, is that, is that something that you guys are encountering in, in your research? I think it really depends on where you are. So I think, you know, you get these places where this is still in certain, certain languages um, where religious-based swearing is still much more common. So I understand that in, uh, I don't know if you have any uh, Quebecois people in here, but I understand that in Quebec French, um, people are much more likely to use kind of terms uh, like tabernacle, to use like tabernacle as a, as a kind of term of, not, as a, not of abuse, but like if you stub your toe uh, or something like that. So, you know, a much more religiously rich language, which I think we, we have in Ireland as well. But it's one of those really interesting ones because blasphemy is, I mean, has obviously been a concern right the way from earliest societies up to Ireland several weeks ago. Uh, it was a major legal concern, evidently, which is why we had to have a law about it. Um, but it's something that I think gets at something we've, we've kind of talked about a little, which is these fears around kind of regulation of speech, the fear about what bad speech can do. Um, so certainly people in the 17th and 18th centuries, and even the um, author, authors of Ireland's 1937 constitution, obviously had worries around... Um, the capacity of irreligious speech to damage society. You know, Cromwell banned um, swearing in his, in, in his army. There's a fine uh, for soldiers who swore. Uh, Robert Boyle, uh, who we know as the, the man behind Boyle's Law, uh, another Irish guy actually, um, has a classic complaint which is basically he's saying, oh, the kids are all swearing now. You can hear these kids are using all these curse words that I'd never use. That's kind of a concept, but he's, he's talking particularly about children blaspheming and saying things like, God damn you and God damn me uh, and things like that. And that kind of you know, in Venice in the 17th century, you have, you can, you walk around Venice today, you can still find these stone plaques um, in some of the piazzas and um, some of the squares uh, which have orders against blasphemy uh, and tell you that if you blaspheme in public, you will be prosecuted and you might end up with a, um, uh, with something very sharp thrust through your tongue. So that idea of blasphemy is something that fundamentally troubles the state, that rulers and societies, it's not just about stamping out bad manners, it's the idea that if we allow this kind of speech, the world around us could crumble. That's kind of incredibly strong, I think. I don't know, and we haven't left it behind. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any thoughts on... I think that's a quite a common view still. So um, I mentioned earlier Boris Johnson when, when he was Mayor of London uh, proposing a sort of zero tolerance policy on swearing at the police. And this was in the, in the wake of the, uh, the, the riots uh, that took place in 2011. Um, and one thing he said about it is that if you let people get away with the small things, then they'll go on to do worse things. I mean, obviously, this wasn't based on anything except Boris Johnson's intuitions, which we maybe have reason to distrust. But it, I think it's the, same, it's the same idea. It's that if we let people, if we sort of overlook the small bad things, then that will lead to all sorts of other things. And maybe just to do with a sort of general... Um, you know, if, if somebody disrespects these important social norms, then maybe they're not going to respect other sort of m more important social norms. You know, if, if somebody's allowed to get away with swearing, maybe they'll 
murder somebody or something like this. And I think that's pervasive, even though I'm not sure we have any... Well, you'll know better than it's, it's, if there's any it's evidence. It seems to be a it. weird sort of logical fallacy. So although you know, my background is in AI, I started out by studying formal logic. And this idea of you know, if you tolerate this, then your children, children will, will be next. It's, it's, it's this pervasive thing. And I cannot work out if this is something that people just glom onto because it's useful as a propaganda tool. Maybe the only reason it is so useful as a propaganda tool is that we're, we are wired to look for patterns. We are wired to go, you know, if there is a trend here, I've got two points, I can draw a line between them, and, and that line will continue to go up in this terrifying manner. Whereas two points is not enough to tell you the trend of anything. But we are simple monkeys telling each other where the ripe bananas are and our ability to say actually it's a bit more complicated than that that's two people using exactly the same word or even the same person using exactly the same word in entirely different contexts can mean very different things is much more difficult to wrap your head around than if they're swearing at the police the next thing you know is they'll be completely overturning the order of the state it's and it makes me wonder what there is now that is like blasphemy that we are saying you know you must not say this or you must not do this for fear of bringing down the state is it that we've actually given up on the idea of a central powerful state and we're no longer worried about anything threatening it because we don't not only don't believe that you know that religion is that important but also that the sanctity of the state the offices of you know of, of power are actually that important i don't know i think Why? you do see this in other areas so you, you it reminds me of what some people say about political correctness mm. you know sort of the idea of political correctness going mad you know like if we if we respect the feelings of certain people then i don't know we're going to have to respect everyone's feelings <laughs> we're going to have to accept each other's basic fundamental humanity <sighs> I know, disaster. Disaster. It sort of ties back to the earlier point about what you do in these situations where you realised, you know, you have offended someone, right? This, like, so much depends on how you react in that initial moment. And I think, uh, you know, whether it's just a sort of one word that's been said that's causing problems or in general, like, a a lack of consideration over other people's, I think it's like an ability to see the context quickly and maybe apologise quick. So uh, just any sort of final questions? You've got a few more minutes. I've got one in the front here. Here and then this woman behind, and then this man in the hat <laughs> with the red hat. Well, thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm struggling here to think of anything other than the spoken word that might constitute swearing. I just can't. I can't imagine it. I don't. I don't mean. And I think it's been kind of sliding between uh, things that give offence, which I wouldn't consider a swearing as such. But something other than the spoken word that doesn't give offence but constitutes swearing. Okay. So, so it's a non-verbal sort of way of swearing, equivalent to swearing. Okay, thanks. And then this woman here, please. Uh, so regarding slurs, do you think there's any sense that... <clears throat> The words are given greater power by the fact we expect certain groups not to use them under any circumstance. So, for example, within this discussion, we're all happy using the word fuck and shit, and arguably even as a man, I can use the word cunt, right? But even in an intellectual context, none of us would find it acceptable to say or even write the N-word. And do you think that 
This gives an additional power to the word and may inadvertently strengthen the racist's ability to, to use that word as a weapon. And do you think that, that the power of that word may naturally diminish, as has arguably happened with the word cunt in this country? Okay, thanks. And then this just woman here. Um, I was wondering if you could speak more about the correlation between swearing and more positive things, such as the perception that people who swear are more honest or more genuine, sometimes even more intelligent. Is there any truth to that? Just... Sure. Okay. Thanks. So sort of one question about uh, the spoken word versus maybe non-spoken version of swearing. Um, words and power, so are restricting terms to certain groups, is that in some way playing a part in, you know, uh, maintaining the power to offend that those words have and then finally sort of more pos you know positive considerations uh on intelligence and swearing so sorry you've only got five minutes <laughs> to try and do all of these but go oh. i'll take the happy one first although actually you know it's a bit sad um so there have been studies that show that people who essentially convey the same message with swearing versus non-swearing language tend to be uh, considered to be more uh, authentic in their beliefs, more passionate, uh, more likely to be telling the truth than not. These are all lab studies rather than out in the wild. It's very difficult to, you know, sort of grab people as you're running down the street and go, you heard that guy over there saying Man United are shit this season. Do you think he really believes that? And would you believe it less if he'd said he thought they were bad? So it's all done in very, you know, sort of sterile lab stuff. But my worry with this is that this is like the gestures that um, Desmond Morris codified in Man Watching, and he talked about batoning and precision gestures and whatever. And that next thing you, well, not next thing you know, but later on you see that political operatives have been trained to, and I'm doing it now because it's so pervasive, but trained to use these messages to go, here's something that requires precision. Even Donald Trump does this all the time, not a thing out of his mouth requires any nuance or precision, but he's doing the nuance and precision gesture. And I worry that these findings have made people like Donald Trump go, oh, if I say shithole, people are going to think I'm being terribly authentic. I don't know why I'm speaking. That's not how he speaks. Um, but <laughs> I'm worried that that instrumental swearing, as soon as you realize there's potential effect to it, that people are just going to then start using it and rob it of that authenticity. Whether or not the authenticity of being able to use any word, whatever, um, the, the reason I don't use the N-word, as I said, I don't have the experience of knowing what it's like to have that yelled at me and it be a precursor to something horrible happen. I do know what it's like to have the word cunt yelled at me and that be the precursor to something horrible happening. I think that if there is a movement to reclaim a word, like the word queer, that has to come from within that community. I don't think the problem is that we don't expect white people to use the N-word, we don't expect men to use the C-word, we expect them to use it with depressing regularity in certain circumstances to mean certain things. And while that's still going on, you can't, you can't spray air freshener over it and go, actually, this word doesn't mean horrible things when people are using it in a horrible way. And when it comes to nonverbal swearing, I mean, I mainly looked at language, but there are rude gestures. There's also, you know, the, the crudely drawn cock of every schoolboy's, you know, I just, there are various things that people use in order to be offensive, but there are also other things that we get 
weirdly offended about, like Janet Jackson's nipple. And I'm sorry, I'm referring to Janet Jackson. We decided earlier that nobody knows who Janet Jackson is anymore. These aren't undergraduates, mainly those. Yeah. But Janet Jackson's nipple at the Super Bowl, all of a sudden, this particular square inch of flesh was terrifying and was going to bring down the order of society and, and corrupt the youth. Yeah, we knew what was there. We knew what was there underneath <laughs> that. But somehow a wardrobe malfunction, and again, it shows that there are these certain things that are taboo, that are visceral. They don't have to be expressed in words. Just even you know, making them manifest, even accidentally, can be considered to be you know, disturbing in some way. So, yeah... <laughs> yeah, so the, the issue of sort of whether by abstaining from using a word we increase its power, I think this is, a, this is a point about taboo generally, that taboos, it's fun to break taboos, but the reason it's fun to break them is because we don't usually break them. Um, and swearing is a sort of interesting example because we do we do keep swearing, but it's sort of the, I think the fact that it's so uh, it's so confined to certain contexts uh, maintains its power. There is there is a debate about this, um, especially with regards to the word cunt, and especially the way it's used in the US, which is slightly different to mm-hmm. the British way. So in the US, it tends to be um, a slur against women, whereas sort of I guess in this country you would more use it against men, if any, or it's gender yeah. neutral. This seems um, to be a generational thing. I don't know, anyone who's under 25, how, how many of you think that's, that, that cunt is actually more of a gendered slur than, than a neutral one? Yeah. Yeah, it's, we seem to have re-imported this American idea of it being gendered. Because right. okay. I'm, I'm yeah. probably a little bit older than you, but for me, I used to call my male friends cunts all the time. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so what was I saying? Yeah, so there's this sort of debate about how we diffuse the power of that, which is a desirable thing to do because it's, um, it's no accident that the, the most offensive swear word is one that, is uh, one that refers to the female anatomy. So mm-hmm. cunt is way more offensive than something like dick. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's a thought that that sort of that pattern of offence embodies sort of um, sexist attitudes. And then there's a sort of debate about how we correct that. So some people think that uh, we should just stop using it. Nobody should use it. And sort of even the most liberal-minded people, if they think they're if they think of themselves as feminists, that should avoid using it because it's so contemptuous of women. Of women. Um, whereas another view holds that you, you weaken a taboo by continually breaking it. You know, if you break it and break it and break it, it nobody cares. Um, and so there's a view that the way to, the way to uh, loosen its power is to use it even more. Um, so I think that, yeah, there's this, there is this recognition that you, you weaken taboos by breaking them, but I'm not sure it's that simple. Um, Does it only ever work, though, if it's people in the in-group that are using that word? I think that's, I think that's the worry. Mm-hmm. So the worry would be that, you know, if you, okay, if we get, like, loads of right-on people <laughs> calling each other cunts, then fine. But the worry would be that then it's sort of, it, it just... It gives a license to sort of people who hold the wrong attitudes, and, and that might, might strengthen it, if anything. I think maybe the way to address this is to tackle the surrounding attitudes in ways other than just deciding which words you're going to use. So, you know, you're not going to kind of crush the patriarchy by calling people cunts or not calling people cunts. Um, you, have to do, you have to do other things as well. And I think that that's going to be... I think that that's going to apply generally. Um, it's... 
so you know sort of there are taboos because we have certain values and the values aren't just about the words they're about the you know what's happening in society in general and that seems like a fitting rallying cry to end on then um so i hope you'll join me uh, in showing how bloody grateful we are for the <laughs> attendance so thanks very much guys